From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with my Carnegie colleague, Tim Moore, a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment and co-director for one of Carnegie's newest programs, the Cyber Policy Initiative. At Carnegie, Tim's research focuses on cyberspace and international affairs, namely cybersecurity, human rights online, internet governance, and their interlinkages. Prior to joining Carnegie, Moore was the director of the Global Cybersecurity Norms and Resilience Project, at New America, and head of research of New America's Cybersecurity Initiative. Tim has spoken extensively on cybersecurity issues at the United Nations, and he helped to develop the Global Cyber Definitions Database for the chair of the OSCE. During our podcast conversation, Tim and I discussed the growing importance and intersection of cyberspace and international relations, and the potential for cybersecurity to undermine the stability of the international system. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tim Moore and be on the lookout for Tim's newest book entitled Cyber Mercenaries, The State, Hackers, and Power to be released in January 2018. And if you like China in the World podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and comment on iTunes. And of course, head to Carnegie Tsinghua website for more work from all of our scholars. Tim, before we delve into issues, um, I wanted to just start by asking you to talk a bit about this new program at the Carnegie Endowment, which you were brought on uh, last year in October to help build. Um, what's the focus of the initiative, this new cyber initiative? What are the aims? What are your goals for it? And how is this unique for Carnegie? Sure, and thanks for having me uh, today, Paul. The Carnegie Cyber Policy Initiative focuses primarily on global cybersecurity, and it grew out of the nuclear policy program at Carnegie, which has been focused obviously on, on nuclear policy and the stability um, of, the, of the international system. And out of that kind of sentiment, the Carnegie made the decision to also look at cybersecurity. As we've seen in the last few years, it's obviously uh, grown in terms of uh, the topic, but also risen on the agenda. And it's clear now that cybersecurity has the potential to undermine the stability in the system. So we are much looking at this from the perspective of, one, how does cyber insecurity undermine the stability of the international system? And what can we do to actually increase stability and working with governments to potentially develop some rules of the road and supporting the ongoing process for that? And you said it grew out of the nuclear policy program at Carnegie. George Perkovich, Ellie Levitt, well-known names in the nuclear field. Is there a thought that looking at cyber in the future in terms of setting up norms and rules and regulations, regimes, that there are things we can learn from our experience in arms control and the nuclear policy world? Definitely, and actually one of our main projects right now is working with U.S. Cyber Command on updating the Cyber Analogies book, which focuses on how, what kind of analogies can we make to other security fields, and this includes the nuclear field. And if you look at the 
international processes in the last few years, a lot of that actually emulates what we saw during the Cold War. On the one hand, we have um, the establishment of hotlines between countries, very much like what we saw during the Cold War after the Cuba crisis, a lot of discussion about escalation dynamics um, that mirrors the discussions of the Cold War. And a final point on that, a lot of people actually compare where we are currently at with regard to cybersecurity to the discussions in the nuclear space in the 1950s. Mm. Um, there are obviously limitations to that, to that analogy. Cyberspace and the internet is very, very different in many ways as well. But in terms of process and the, how that field has evolved, there are also a lot of things that we can learn and mm. draw analogies from. Very new field and a lot of work to be done. So we're glad you're at Carnegie uh, as part of this new program. Um, I want to provide our listeners some context um, on this topic and wanted to ask you if you would just define cybersecurity for our listeners. Introduce, if you could, the policy aspect of cybersecurity and how cybersecurity is addressed in international relations. Let me start with a, with a technical definition. If we look at the standard by the International Standardization Organization, they would define cybersecurity as anything that undermines the availability, confidentiality, or integrity uh, of information. That's the technical term. Now, if we look at the political level, mm -hmm. then you quickly get into uh, the political negotiations. Um, cybersecurity by the US government and, and most European and Western countries is defined more from the network security aspect, so a much more technical focus on the actual infrastructure. Um, the Chinese government and some other governments like the Russian Federation are pursuing a broader definition of cybersecurity. They actually use the term information security usually that includes questions of content and not specifically just the technical aspects. Um, and that's part of the challenge of the internet. What else besides content? I mean, sovereignty, issues like that? Um, that as well. And mm -hmm. it's um, also more with a domestic-focused uh, agenda than the more international, external-focused agenda of the cybersecurity discussions. Mm -hmm. More focused on challenges perceptions of challenges to their own domestic security. Exactly, yes. Um, so let's talk about U.S.-China. You're here in China, and uh, obviously the Carnegie Tsinghua Center focuses on China. Um, over the past few years, the disagreements between U.S. and China on cyberspace have come to the foreground. Um, 2014, um, I believe it was, we had the indictment of the five PLA officers, um, and then in the lead-up, recently in September to the state visit to the United States by Xi Jinping. Of course, there were U.S. Uh, threats of sanctioning, which they brought Meng Jianju to the United States, and they reached, the U.S. and China reached an agreement during the state visit. Um, it has resulted in an agreement that, um, and I'll read from the, from the language, that uh, neither China nor the U.S. would conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property. Uh, including trade secrets or other confidential business information with the intent of providing competitive advantages to companies or commercial sectors. Um, this is the language that came out of the state visit. I think people were frankly surprised that the U.S. and China were able to come to this agreement. Um, but of course, President Obama uh, during the press conference said, we'll have to wait and see whether actions follow words. Um, there's been high-level working groups set up. They met in December and just recently here on the margins of the SNED here in Beijing. They announced that progress is being made, but give us a sense, if you could, for where things stand in this regard. Is What kind of progress is being made? 
we really seen a reduction in uh, this kind of activity? Um, and how do you think we'll see things going forward? What's interesting about this space is that in addition to the official statements by governments, we actually have additional information provided by private security companies who have their own um, threat intelligence units who've tracked different different actors. And some of them... These have, are like Mandiant and others like this. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, some of them have reported that there has been a decrease in activity. Um, I mean, I think a week after the statement, one company reported that there had not been any decrease in the activity. Mm. Um, I think President Xi might still have been in the air, so I think that, that was a little <laughs> early. Um, but that is interesting in that you have an, an independent source of information, and some of that has suggested that the activity has decreased. Now, is that going to be sustainable? I think that's a big open question. Uh, the Chinese government is very large, the bureaucracy is fragmented, there are different um, interests at play, and the language itself is also open to, to uh, interpretation. I mean, uh, what is commercial advantage? And that has obviously big, uh, mm. been a big contention between the two countries. Um, but it's also very clear, and I think this led to the agreement, that the pressure rose and that there's a significant constituency in the U.S. that after the OPM hack felt enough is enough and something needs to change. Um, and a final note on that. I so your perception is that the OPM hack really led to the U.S. pushing this issue to, to, the, to the threat of sanctions, that, it was, that that really had a pivotal I think part. it definitely increased the pressure. Um, even though it was more perceived to be a political espionage case, it was perceived in the broader context. Because, of course, General Clapper basically <laughs> implied that they, it was fair game. He did, um, and I think he was envious of that even, that if the U.S. would have had a similar opportunity, they would have done the same. Um, but what is interesting about the agreement is I think that it showcased a will at the highest level of government that this is something that the two states wanted to make progress on and actually agree on, on language uh, rather than have it escalate further. And I think the working groups are essential for that uh, in actually having this con conversation continue and having processes in place for when there's a new incident what information should be provided by each side. And I think what's even more important moving forward, that these working groups won't be suspended, even if there is a, a time of heightened tension. Mm. Um, unlike uh, back uh, two or three years ago, when the working group that had been set up got after suspended the after the indictments, mm -hmm. um, which is understandable from the dynamic. But I think given the importance of this topic and how much uh, uh, the concerns on both sides, I think it's important in the future to make sure these working groups and the process stays in place because that will help us to de-escalate if necessary and to manage that situation. Now, coming out of the state visit, I noticed that in the G20, there was language in the statement coming out of it that was similar to the U.S. and China agreement. How did that develop? And what are the implications for that, given that the G20 is obviously more than just a bilateral agreement? Yeah, that is really interesting and I think sheds some light on how the broader global discussion about cyber norms uh, is proceeding because there is a general discussion going on in the international community for what rules of the road should govern cyberspace. And this includes espionage, but it also includes how conflict um, will play out. And you saw the initial bilateral agreement between the US and China, which was followed by a similar agreement between the UK and China shortly thereafter. And that then eventually led to the agreement between the heads of states in the context of the G20 and the statement. You saw something similar happen um, three years prior where the US and Russia agreed to a bilateral agreement to essentially use the hotline between the two countries and the confidence building measures. 
and the U.S.-Russian agreement then led to an agreement in the context of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So very similar uh, dynamic of first a bilateral agreement between two of the major players, which then leads into a broader framework, um, and this has been part of the strategy and process for developing and understanding among the international community writ large. Well, thank you for that. I, so, uh, on this, you know, global global cybersecurity agreements, uh, you mentioned the the uh, the China UK and and China uh, Germany are also publishing similar accords. At the UN, this group of governmental experts report, which came out in 2013, um, proposing norms in international cyber activity, and this was agreed to by 20 governments, including the chi China and the United States. Um, and this built on an agreement in 2013, a landmark agreement um, report um, that provided greater detail outlining several norms for cyber diplomacy. So we had some diplomatic progress, um, but there are still doubts sort of concerning the extent to which these agreements can be implemented. Can you talk about these doubts? Tell us you know, what the outlook for 2013 looks for in the space and going beyond. Yeah, sure. And. Um I think here the diplomats, from a diplomatic perspective, the uh, GGE report has been a great success. Um, if you talk to the international lawyers, they will give you a very different analysis. They will point out that, first of all, it's um, a group of governmental experts meeting through the first committee of the General Assembly. Uh, so it's not the first committee of the General Assembly that has passed a resolution. It's a, it's a report by groups, by experts from 20 countries that then submit that report to the first committee, and even the General Assembly resolutions are usually considered soft law. So it's not even a General Assembly resolution. So in terms of under existing international law, um, this agreement is doesn't really have any standing. Mm -hmm. And the norms themselves, it says explicitly in the report, are voluntary norms. Um, so from that perspective, um, they are more of a political uh, statement than anything mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean, though, that they can't develop a life of their own because mm -hmm. the hope is that, one, on the one hand, these norms will uh, disseminate across the international community and will be taken up by other governments and that they will eventually then become absorbed. But the big question is how do you verify and enforce them? Yeah. Um, and this is an area where there's a lack of transparency, partly because so much of it is taking place in the covert and classified space. Sure. Um, and, but going back to my initial comment, this is where it's a fascinating security field because you have a lot of private sector companies that are engaged in this as a third party uh, that are providing more information that wasn't otherwise available. Um, yeah. But you had a lot of work, a lot more work to be done in this field. And I understand uh, that you'll be coming back to China again, given your work uh, with this, with the new cyber program at Carnegie. And we'd like to have you come back to the podcast. We appreciate you joining us today and welcome you to the Carnegie Endowment, even though you've been here since October. But uh, thank you very much for doing the podcast with me today. Thank you, Paul. And I look forward to coming back. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.